This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast brought to you in association with Renewable UK. This week I'm joined by our Africa and LNG editor Ed Reid and digital journalist Hamish Penman. It feels like it has been a little while since we've had all three of us round the table, guys. Has it been three weeks? Am I making I think it has up? been that. Yeah, I've been off for the last couple of weeks, so it's uh, good to get the band back together. No, my, my concepts of, of time since I started in this particular job have become uh, nebulous, I think would be the fair description of it. So who knows? Who knows how long it's been? But it is good to get the band back together. And it has been another very busy week in the world of energy news. Uh, we'll kick off, though, with the Chancellor's spring statement this week. Hamish, after much debate around the topic, no windfall tax. No windfall tax. That was yeah, I mean, it was that was kind of the big highlight. Is that the big announcement? Is that there is no big announcement, in kind of true thick of it style. <laughs> um, but yeah, spring statement yesterday, or the mini budget, as I saw it called on Twitter. I think that was a far more useful title for it. They should look for a rebrand, the latest rebrand, of course. Um, so it did come. There was quite a lot of expectation on it. It came against a backdrop of cost of living crisis. We've got inflation. We've got a war in Ukraine. So there was yeah, there was a good degree of maybe there might be a couple of pretty radical policy announcements to address these issues or those arising from them. Um, But yeah, the general consensus after it seems to have been, is that it? Um, So we've got a 5% cut to fuel duty, uh, a 1p cut to income tax by 2024, uh, although national insurance is going up by around the same figure. So that doesn't really make sense to me, but anyway. Um, And a VAT cut on energy saving items like solar panels. So good news for the the few people that can afford those. Um, <laughs> but nothing major in the short term, which may not be a, a wholly bad thing in some regards. Uncertainty is pretty rife at the moment. So policy kind of designed on the hoof to be a quick fix may have added to that uncertainty. That's certainly the case for the oil and gas industry. Um, I imagine there was probably a few sleepless nights amongst the, uh, the top brass recently worrying about a windfall tax. Uh, that spectre has been around since... Christmas really I think that's when the first calls started to emerge for it as, as prices started to go through the roof uh, and since then the voices have got louder um, but Rishi Sunak decided not to, to tap into companies' profits it was thought that might be in return for, for pledges around increased investment in the North Sea uh, but there wasn't much about that um, there wasn't actually really much about the North Sea in general during his speech which was quite surprising um, I don't think we were the only ones to be surprised because Rachel Reeves the Shadow Chancellor kicked off Literally, her opening statement was about oil and gas and the lack of windfall tax. So I think that they were maybe expecting something, Mm. at least either way on it, um, rather than the, I suppose we almost call it silence that that came before. Um, She also, Labour were quite in favour of a windfall tax, it's important to point out, and she did slam. Rishi Sunak for for the lack of such a measure, saying, who does the Chancellor prioritise? He continues to defend the record profits of oil and gas producers who themselves admit that they have more money than they know what to do with. Mm. Um, So to coincide with the spring statement as well, we did have the latest figures from the Office for Budget Responsibility. Uh, They are going to enjoy a nice little uh, bonus from all these oil and gas prices. Treasury takings from the North Sea are going to jump to three point, uh, expect to jump from, sorry, 3.1 billion in 2021-2022 to 7.8 billion in 2022-2023. 
Um, so that's a figure well over 10 times higher than pre-pandemic receipts in 2019-20, it says, and the highest fiscal return for the North Sea since 2010-11. So boom days are back, boys. Mm. So I think it's pretty good. But in that, I think there's quite good justification for maybe not having a windfall tax. Can I just ask, Hamish, did you did you actually think that there would be a windfall tax, right? I mean, it, it always seemed like, I, I, obviously, it was the Labour and, and the Lib Dems were so keen on it. That even from sheer politics, the conservatives would be opposed to it. Yeah. Like, let alone anything else. I, I want to answer this oh, one. Far away. Um, <laughs> so, uh, we had uh, Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack and Energy Minister uh, Greg Hands up in Aberdeen in recent days for the Scottish Tory Party Conference. And we had, I had interviews with both, uh, and they were both fairly categorical. I'd say that the windfall tax is a bad idea. The Chancellor doesn't favour it. It'll stifle investment in the North Sea at a time when we really need it. And that is despite um, very hefty profits being returned to shareholders, I might say, rather than investment in renewables necessarily. So by the time the spring statement rolled around, uh, and hindsight's a wonderful thing, of course, but I can't, I can't say that I was really at the edge of my seat expecting it to go ahead as Hamish has pointed out, and not just not just Labour, but the SNP have also varying policies in terms of who gets uh, this windfall tax applied to them. But overall, they're both calling for a windfall tax, not necessarily the same one. Um, so there was political pressure to do it, but it, it sounded like the Conservatives were all making the same noises and that they support the North Sea. Um, and I mean, Alistair Jack, when I spoke to him, he almost, it sounded like he was an oil and gas uh, offshore energies UK spokesperson when he said <laughs> this would stifle investment in the North Sea at a time when we need it most, you know, um, and just because they had good profits this year, it's not reflective of the, the, the recent years we've had in the past since 2014, really. Two big downturns, heavy losses, heavy redundancies. So, you know, this is the the, the one the one year that they've had a really big boom. Um, so, yeah, the, 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 the suggestions of windfall tax wasn't um, necessarily the right uh, move, especially in the context of Russia and the Ukraine. Now, having said that, uh, I'm not sure it's 100% off the table. Mm-hmm. Andy Samuel, uh, the chief executive of the North Sea Transition Authority and his op-ed this week for the OGA's rebrand to that new uh, name, he said that, and he acknowledged that businesses have made record profits from high oil and gas prices, and we want to honour the North Sea transition deal now by putting a large chunk towards substantial energy transition projects. So there's clearly an expectation there, I think, that uh, oil and gas companies should be re-injecting these profits into uh, energy transition. Now, They've taken care of their shareholders, big buybacks. Uh, and we do know, of course, that they are investing in, or they've announced plans to invest in uh, CCS, electrification, offshore wind through Scotland. Great. But I think, you know, the optics of all that, especially if households are seen to be struggling to pay their bills and we're seeing these continued headlines about shareholder returns, I think that the the political uh, optics, for lack of a better word, that could become more challenging um, as time goes on. I don't know what you think, Hamish. Yeah, well, I mean, what, we've got six, seven months to the autumn budget. The ball's now really in the industry's court as to what it does. There is an expectation on it from, from government and from probably from society widely as well that if it's not going to, if there's not going to be a windfall tax, then it's going to have to use those profits in a way that benefits society as a whole. It's quite, a, quite a sweeping statement there because <laughs> hopefully, <laughs> um, hopefully, all the uh, government spending does that. Yeah, but it's now going to have to show that it's investing in renewables, it's investing in kind of new project, new North Sea projects that it can bring on stream pretty quickly, 
um, to bring the costs of oil and gas down. Um, so yeah, I mean, the onus is now in the industry if we have to report kind of in in the summer when the this half year results are out that there's still big share buybacks coming on, then it's going to be increasingly hard to defend not looking at these companies, especially if oil and gas prices are still at the at the point they are now. I mean, we can't really predict that. There's every chance that they could drop again with uncertainties in the Ukraine continuing. And, and Hamish, just before we move on from this particular segment, um, the, the the Aberdeen and Grampian, like there's there's so much consternation right now about um, carbon capture and storage. It seems that there's a lot of business leaders in Aberdeen who who were maybe hoping for a bit of news on uh, the Track Two funding for uh, carbon capture in the the Scottish cluster, but but disappointed. Yeah, the sum total of uh, Sweet FA on. Uh CCS, um, which left uh, yeah Fergus March fairly underwhelming, he described it, which I think would be a nice little paraphrase for how a lot of people felt. But there was nothing on carbon capture, um, whether that maybe it's going to be an autumn budget one that would kind of be a year on, mm. give or take a, a few days from when the uh, the initial track was announced. But yeah, Nick Cooper from Sturega, he was equally as miffed should we say that there was a there was nothing in it um i used the nice phrase of there was no rabbit out of the hat for carbon capture and storage and hydrogen as hoped um so yeah nothing nothing on that regards we will wait and see with bated breath ah well with bated breath indeed i mean greg hands again when he was up uh, did ask him about this and uh the, the response was something like uh, oh yes we will we'll hope to have something to say about that before the end of the year, hopefully sooner, which uh, again didn't really inspire confidence about a, an imminent track two announcement. Yeah. But, uh, nice nine months to to, to 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 throw some policy together on that one. <laughs> doesn't sound like they're really moving at a, the accelerated rate that the energy uh, transition demands, <laughs> does it? I mean, it's such a long time since COP26 now, of course, but there we are. Okay, uh, well, thanks, Hamish. Next up, we will take a look at various shell projects back in contention for the North Sea. Energy is going through seismic change. This will be driven by people, attracting new talent and reskilling the current workforce. Our Net Zero Workforce event, held online and at the Chester Hotel in Aberdeen on the 29th of March, 2022, We'll explore the opportunities and challenges in the great energy skills transition and connect leading corporates, educators and innovators with the workforce of tomorrow. Free registration for virtual attendance and tickets for the physical event will be available soon. But right now, we're looking for sponsors to join the event panels to debate this critical issue. Our event partners have the opportunity to project their leadership on energy skills transfer help set the just transition agenda with the wider industry and legislators and speak directly with talent that can shape their future. For details of sponsorship opportunities, email ryan.stevenson at energyvoice.com. Details are in the episode notes. So, uh, three big pieces of news for Shell in the last week or so. I'll start with the one that we love to revisit every time on this podcast is Cambo. Uh, so we reported uh, last week that Shell was mapping out next steps on Cambo with Sickerpoint and the UK government. And then this week, the BBC, uh, magically, had a story about Shell reconsidering its position on Cambo. So that's that's how it goes, I guess. Um, <laughs> what can... I'm not bitter. No, shut up. Of course not. What can we say at this point? Well... 
As we all know, Shell uh, decided in December that they would not take uh, Cambo to a crucial investment decision. Shell brings financial might to that project, Circuit Point Energy. It's generally, the, the perceived wisdom is, can't really go it alone. Since December, Shell have retained their 30% stake. They've not divested it. And if you were to go to the operator Circuit Point Energy's accounts published last month, you will find a line saying that Shell have made clear that they want to keep that 30% stake. So you might then well ask, okay, well, what's the point of them keeping it if they're not going to progress it? I think that's a very good question indeed. So if, if they are keeping the stake, I think it's probably reasonable to assume that they will be looking at the economics of all this. Um, so let's remember, of course, that whatever you might think about environmental reasons. Um, and obviously uh, the decision in December came really very closely off the heels of COP26. But the stated reason for Shell's decision in December was the economics of the project. And yes, it is fairly marginal for an oil giant like Shell, this project. It is very substantial for Sicker Point and it's substantial for uh, the UK sector. Obviously since then, we're in a kind of new context altogether. Uh, the oil price has shot up hugely, as we all know. Uh, and there's uh, this uh, pressure uh, to get on with using domestic supply uh, in the wake of the UK invasion of Ukraine by Russia. I want to get away from Russian supply of oil and indeed of gas. And Cambo is one of those projects that might um, benefit from that uh, added political boost, for, for lack of a better phrase. So next steps are an application for an extension of the Cambo licenses, which expire at the end of this month. So... By the time you're listening, they, they may have expired, I don't know. Um, but understand that Sickerpoint have indeed made an application to extend those licenses. And we'll see whether the OGA, the uh, North Sea Transition Authority, uh, is, is going to uh, accept that extension. In my personal view, I think that's pretty pretty likely indeed. So, so not quite the death blow to Campbell that ca the campaigners had hoped for. I must say, you know, we wouldn't have predicted this in the weeks after COP26. Um, but indeed, you know, COP26 seems a very long time ago indeed. Yeah, I did think it was quite funny the amount of kind of <laughs> patting on the back in December that we saw when, when Shell decided to pull the plug on it of, of environmental groups taking full credit for, for, the, uh, for the reasoning. Um, which it undoubtedly did play a part, but mm. there was uh, yeah, there was a kind of a, a school of thought that that was the only the only influence. And I mean, it, it's it's in quite a difficult area. It's a kind of a famously and not an easy area to to um, west of Shetland to to do to do business. So I mean, it's likely that the economics were pretty marginal on it, and a soaring oil price is going to have made it far more attractive than it certainly was in. Certainly was before the turn of the year. But I suppose on, on on that note, I mean, I think, you know, sure, I mean, presumably, you know, prices will always go up and down, mm. right? I think, you know, that's kind of, that's clearly a given. Um, but I think, you know, is it is is there something to be said about the way in which possibly public uh, appetite for domestic energy might have changed? I mean, now that we're looking down the barrel of sort of scarcity, maybe people are going to be looking, I don't know, maybe less favorably at these kind of complaints from, I don't know, Extinction Rebellion or Greenpeace or whoever coming out against uh, developing North Sea fields. I think I think it certainly seems like the UK government is banking on that to an extent. Um, if, well, one way or the other, um, Cambo is a sort of project that's going to take years to come online. And we talked about this uh, a couple of weeks ago and, and very recently, you know, New North Sea fields uh, are not going to help the, this issue in the short term. 
it might, you know, taking a longer term view help us with reducing reliance. And and yeah, I, I, I think um, that there will at least be some shift in public perception. I think there has been perhaps a bit more scrutiny in, in recent weeks uh, and months about where we get our energy from. Now, how much of Cambo is going to get exported um, and how much of it's going to be retained here? We'll wait for this energy supply strategy to see how that may or may not change. Uh, the, the UK government is imminently expected to publish a uh, UK energy supply strategy um, designed to see us withhold and use more of our own domestic supply rather than imports from overseas and exports. And that's getting into things like storage, which I'm not going to do right now. Um, but ultimately, yes, Ed, I think you're right. I think people are having a, a there's more political support for that domestic um, supply. Uh, and that is surely going to play in projects like this as favour. Speaking of projects like these, um, another one that will probably benefit from such a sentiment is Jackdaw, which is Shell's project, which in October, uh, OPRED, the environmental regulator, rejected uh, over uh, issues around emissions. And we now have a, a better understanding of the reasons behind that rejection. We can get into that. But it was a big shock when it was rejected. Uh, again, just around COP26 time, sent a bad signal to the industry in terms of investor sentiment. And Shell have now resubmitted their application uh, and with hopes of getting it approved. So Jackdaw, um, they say this will supply 6.5% of UK gases at its peak, 500 million pounds invested in the UK supply chain. And as we've already talked about, we have a very different context from the time when this was uh, rejected. So look tricky in October, now not so much. Uh, a material gas field that will help us get off Russian supply. I think, you know, possibly the regulator will respond uh, differently uh, now from uh, the overlords um, and, and what they're being told from on high. I will, I will go into very briefly the the reasons for it being rejected. So as we kind of already knew, oh, this and we're at risk of getting a bit technical, but Opred wanted Jackdaw to be sent ashore via the Harbour Energy duty platform. There was a Jackdaw gas to be sent via the duty platform rather than Shell's Shearwater gas hub. And that was for reasons of emissions. As I understand it, uh, they would want to, Shell would have wanted to vent emissions in order to reduce the amount of corrosive CO2 in the pipeline before sending it to shore. By going through duty, there'd be a higher content of CO2 in the pipeline, which is corrosive and costly. If they did it through um, shear water, they would be able to do some venting. It means it wouldn't cause damage to their pipelines. This new application means Shell is going to have to spend a bit of money in order to get more CO2 content through the pipes to Shearwater and onto St. Fergus and Aberdeenshire. People in the industry will care about that. Uh, I think more broadly, people will be thinking about, uh, you know, this is a new gas field. Uh, it's a big money for, for, the, for the sector. Um, and I think, I think one thing to point out from the reasons, though, Opred rejecting it, some have said is a bit baffling and unexpected. The emissions would come out in the same way, one way or the other, if you put it to shore, if you vent offshore. Uh, and it would it would appear, I think, from this that Opred were simply saying, well, not in the UK North Sea, that's our backyard. As long as it's not in the UK North Sea, we're, we're not caring. That's what it smacks of in a big way. So a bit problematic there, I think. Um, perhaps the regulators need to speak to each other a bit more, but um, there's that many regulators in the UK that... Uh, it's, it's problematic. And I'll very quickly go on to my third one, which is Shell have kicked off drilling on the high-impact uh, Edinburgh well, which uh, is cross-border with the UK and Norway. And you always, always, always take pre-drill estimates with a, a tablespoon, tablespoon of salt. Um, but the volume's there between 100 and 675 million barrels of oil equivalents. So that's very 
material uh, for the UK, granted it's UK-Norway border, but material if it goes ahead and, as I say, the fact that it actually is cross-border with Norway might mean it actually might happen. Um, <laughs> so we'll see. But yeah, uh, ultimately, a lot has changed since uh, October-November time. We, this is kind of characteristic of the sentiment we're seeing in the, in the sector now. Just investments kind of coming back in and people are happy to talk about projects, which is, is good because I, I, I'm sick of talking about COVID, <laughs> frankly. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it, it is interesting, isn't it, how there has, you know, there does seem to be a bit of a sort of a, a, a change of wind, doesn't there? And, and, and obviously people now are sort of talking about exploration mm -hmm. again, which, you know, uh, 12 months ago, even as you say, in, in sort of November was uh, pretty far from, from, from everyone's minds, you know, BP and Shell picking up exploration blocks in uh, in Asia I saw this week obviously shell having you know drilled a big uh, discovery off uh, off Namibia uh was it last month mm -hmm. I mean it, it it feels like you know things are kind of coming back doesn't it and I suppose it you know maybe uh, there's possibly a bit more uh, positivity about sort of uh stronger oil prices in the medium term yeah maybe. no I, I I agree entirely uh, I, I guess I guess the one thing I'll I'll say is you know I've seen people comment on this rather crudely on social media obviously the the invasion of Ukraine is a humanitarian crisis uh, let's be clear whatever profits oil and gas firms take from that should be used for the energy transition uh, and getting that going at an accelerated rate. We've already talked about that. But in terms of the impacts of it from purely global oil and gas price perspective, it it, it does seem to have led to some better uh, sentiment in terms of, as, as you say, in terms of things like exploration um, and, and perhaps a deal of positive investor sentiment in the UK North Sea, particularly. Um, again, you know, we, we talked about this before, and Bob Keeler, formerly CEO of Wood Group, has, has mentioned this. We've done an article on that. He said that, you know, this is a crisis. Oil companies shouldn't be profiteering from it. They should be putting those, those monies back into the energy transition rather than shareholder returns. Um, so we'll see how that progresses. Um, but uh, yeah, it looks like for now, anyway, some positive sentiment around the North Sea and, and wider exploration further afield as, as countries aim to get off of Russian supply. And speaking of, of, of getting off Russian supply, we'll next discuss Germany's big plans for LNG, hydrogen and ammonia imports. Energy Voice investigates and reports on what matters in global energy, helping sector leaders understand the geopolitical and economic factors underpinning current events and giving them a view on what's coming over the horizon. Each year, 3.4 million professionals use Energy Voice as a trusted source of breaking news and insight. Subscribers to Energy Voice receive unlimited access to the Energy Voice website, including premium content, free and discounted special reports and additional content, free access to the Energy Voice Live app featuring a personalized feed and priority access to Energy Voice events. For a 30-day free trial subscription to the Energy Voice website and app, visit energyvoice.com slash subscriptions. Join the global energy conversation with Energy Voice. Okay, so Ed, uh, like Boris Johnson the other week, uh, Germany is also now looking to the Middle East to, to help its to help ease its supply woes. Yeah, indeed. So I mean, it's 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 extraordinary, isn't it, how quickly uh, governments can move, you know, given the right uh, impetus. And I think, you know, I think it was uh, it was uh, February the twenty eighth. The, the the German Chancellor came out and said, you know, we're going to go ahead with these two uh, LNG import terminals. 
And by jingo, they're making it happen. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they're really just, you know, sort of hammering into, uh, you know, sort of fast tracking these developments. I think, you know, the aim is to get those sort of LNG import terminals up and running by 2025, which is, uh, which is pretty fast going. Um, and particularly fast going for a country that clearly has such strong feelings about the energy transition, about about moving away from fossil fuels. Um, but, I, you know, clearly there is this sort of acceptance, isn't there, that um, the, the, the gas is going to continue playing an important part in in Germany and, and indeed Europe's uh, energy future. And that there's going to need to be something to sort of fill that gap when they uh, try and try and taper down uh, Russian supplies, which is obviously a, a work in progress. Mm. And I think it was, you know, obviously also quite uh, significant this week that we saw uh, Total Energies come out and say that they would no longer uh, be buying sort of spots. Uh, no, they, they they said they would they would they would they would, they would stop buying spot uh, cargoes from uh, Russia in late February, and now they're saying they're going to phase out uh, term contracts essentially by the end of the year, in addition to freezing uh, investments in in a number of projects, including Arctic LNG two, which is obviously a a really significant part of uh, future LNG supply. Mm-hmm. So the Germans, um, you know, driven by this sort of strategic imperative of of, of moving away from Russian gas, they, there's been a big uh, trip to uh, to the Middle East. The first port of call was Qatar, which uh, is, um, you know, sort of, I suppose, the first or second in the world in terms of LNG production, depending on, on how things work out at any given time. Uh, and, and Germany kind of coming in strong and saying, you know, we, we, we want to do some deals. And the Qataris very interestingly saying, you know, we've tried talking to them before. They weren't interested, but now they're keen. So there was, a, <laughs> it was, a, it was a, an interestingly uh, pointed uh, statement from Qatar Energy. And, and, and obviously that will now move into uh, negotiations between uh, commercial German players and uh, Qatar Energy. Mm. Pr- presumably, RWE will probably be somewhere in there, I'd have thought. Their CEO was on the trip. And then following that, uh, the German delegation moved on to Abu Dhabi, where they held talks with Adnoc. And um, and this was largely on, on, on su- su- securing supplies of, of green ammonia, primarily. Um, so the, 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 the German uh, take on building these LNG terminals is, is, is in the first instance, they're going to be focused on, on importing gas. But in the second instance, sort of down the line, they are very keen to be able to convert those terminals from LNG into receiving presumably ammonia. Uh, and, 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 and that is clearly going to be driven to an extent by uh, the Middle East, uh, by, you know, Adnoc, Mazda, whoever is in there. And so I think there, there is a, a, a really interesting sort of supply story there about, you know, obviously, there's a, a sort of a, there's a current supply question of LNG. And there's also that sort of future step of, of, of ammonia, of, of, of hydrogen. And then, and then, and then the final piece of the puzzle: uh, Shell uh, signed a contract this week to essentially expressing interest in providing uh, LNG to one of these uh, new terminals. So, just this, the, I, I think, I think that what I'm, what I'm trying to highlight is the sheer pace mm. at which you know things are moving. I think you know Hamish, you, you said you know in the, the first segment, you know the uh, the, the chance of the UK. A possibly slightly underwhelming uh, response to uh, the current 
uh, energy uh, situation. Uh, the, the the German response seems just extremely clear. I mean, the the speed at which uh, they're, they're they're making this move. One of the things that I wanted to kind of ask about that. I mean, yeah, it seems night and day, doesn't it, in terms of the the policy uh, changes and and hopefully it's a steady a steady state um, you know policy uh, course for them. I suppose I suppose you could argue that the UK doesn't want to do anything knee jerk, but obviously the situation in Germany uh, with Nord Stream uh, two being cancelled, they they have to take action. Don't they? Um, I just want. I mean, Ed, how does this stack up with um, the warning we had from Shell? Uh, was it last month? We're looking at a tight market for LNG across Europe. Much of that due to the fact that you know China and the like are buying up contracts. Tight market by mid-decade. So, I mean, how how much can how much can Germany realistically get its hands on at this point? It's yeah, it's 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 going to be an interesting challenge. <laughs> um, so, I mean, I think you know, Shell clearly, you know. In February, I think it was maybe a week before uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. Um, they come out with their, uh, you know, sort of their LNG product pr- projections, and they did say that Europe has failed to sign these these long term deals, and you know, drawing a, a really kind of a clear distinction with uh, with with China, which has been eager to, uh, to 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 secure gas from around the world, a lot of a uh, lot of lot of uh, supplies from from the US. So I think yes, there is going to be a question about 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 where this new supply is going to come from. Um, Qatar is building uh, new LNG production, so that is kind of be going to be you know sort of uh, I suppose sort of three or four years maybe down the line. Obviously, kind of depending on how quickly those those those, those new projects kind of move ahead. Um, but uh, you know. Yes, it's it's going to be a struggle. I mean, I think you know, I think Shell. What what Shell said was that they've got a global portfolio. They can you know sort of trade within their portfolio, uh, you know, and 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 move those cargoes around. So, I suppose what it what uh, my 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 feeling is that that when LNG is needed, it will be there. It's just a question of price. Mm. Um, and I think you know we've seen. The ways in which, you know, recently over the last month, we've seen uh, LNG cargoes diverting from Asia into Europe are purely driven by 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 extremely high European prices, and I think that's going to be uh, going to be the way forwards. We can't get gas storage um, in the UK right now. Never mind uh, the likes of of China, for example, which I I I gather and Damon's not here, obviously, to tell us, but uh, I gather as relatively low uh, gas storage. I mean, again, it just it comes back to that argument around around storage. I, I don't know why we've. Uh, somebody with a better mind than mine can probably answer the question. Ed, you can answer it. <laughs> it does seem it does seem in the the layman to the layman, and in many respects, storage is a, perhaps a, a big part of the solution here. But we just haven't seemed to, for one reason or the other, we haven't seemed to value it or or invest in it enough in, in recent times. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I agree. It, it is it is very strange, isn't it, that the UK has has taken this decision? I suppose uh, it's a sort of a pure reliance on the market, isn't it? You know, the idea that you know when the need is there, uh, volumes can be delivered, and it's got to be said. Obviously, the UK has LNG import terminals. Germany has none. Um, so you know they've just got those pipelines from uh, from 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 Russia, and that's that's going to clearly be a problem. So. I, I guess you know to, to be to be to be fair, there is a, a sort of a slightly different situation. But yes, I mean, I, I think you know certainly looking at where things are now, uh, there's a clear uh, you know driver for uh, to, to to make the case for uh, for for LNG, and 
you know, uh, I, I suppose that's the, uh, the, the the benefit of hindsight, isn't it? I think, you know, like a year ago, two years ago, the world was awash with LNG, right? I mean, I think, you know, people were talking about, you know, how to find places essentially to sort of dump it. You know, people were saying, you know, uh, you know, Ghana, for instance, has an, an FSRU, which I don't believe has ever been used. But, you know, the, the, you know, on the basis that, you know, that this would be a cheap source of gas, you know, for uh, domestic generation. Obviously, LNG no longer a cheap source of gas. And I guess ultimately we're paying the price. Emphasis on we. <laughs> mm, indeed, indeed. Okay. Okay, well, thanks, uh, thanks, Ed. And uh, thank you to Hamish and to Ed for joining me. That is it for this week's latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Outloud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Outloud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.